Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. At Beth Emanuel, we are proclaiming the vital gospel message of the coming kingdom of heaven. If you share our passion for this message, please support this teaching ministry and messianic community with your prayers and financial contributions. To learn how, click on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. In the Christian Bible, Malachi is easy to find because it's right on the Great Divide. Yeah? It's the last book of the Old Testament. It doesn't work that way in the uh, Jewish layout of the Tanakh uh, because the books are in a different order. But it does make sense historically to place Malachi here. Why? Because it's actually the last, historically, chronologically, it's the last book written. Uh, It's the last book of the Tanakh in that regard. But we don't know when it's written. Malachi, um, we don't have a date for it. There's just not enough... There's not enough information here. It just says, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And Malachi is the Irish way that you pronounce Malachi, of course. No. Uh, yeah, you figure Malachi must be Irish. Uh, right. But uh, it, it actually, the word Malach means angel uh, or messenger. So Malachi means my angel or my messenger. And we're not, so we're not even sure if this is really the guy's name because actually this seems to correspond to the prophecy that we read in in chapter three. See, I will send my messenger. I will send my angel. That's chapter three, verse one. Uh, So maybe this is sort of a, a pseudonym for the prophet. We don't know. Or it could be his name. We don't know when it was written. It was written sometime between 500 and 300. That's a pretty broad range. That's like a 200-year moving target there. And I just made those numbers up anyway. So I'm thinking. It makes sense. We know that it's written after the stuff we were studying last week, which we dated around 520, because it's written after the rebuilding of the temple. Obviously, the temple's been not only rebuilt, but has been in service for a long time by the time we're reading Malachi. And so we are generations removed from Zechariah and Haggai and Ezra and Nehemiah by the time we're reading Malachi. So Malachi is really our main prophet of the second temple era. Although in Jewish tradition, he's actually, all the prophets would have been born before the destruction of the first temple. So Malachi, that would make Malachi super old. (laughs) Don't worry about that. Here's what seems to occasion the composition of this set of prophecies. There seems to be trouble with Edom and an attempt on the Edomites part to reestablish themselves. You remember what happened to the Edomites in the prophecies of Obadiah and so forth? Uh, We predicted the demise of Edom. Well, it looks like Edom's trying to make a comeback. So Hashem says through Malachi, this is not going to happen. So let's start with that first first disputation. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, just as an example, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob 
But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. All right, this is our first, what we're calling disputations. I'm going to divide the book of Malachi into six disputations. You can see the outline on the handout. And then we're going to wrap it up at the end with a short apocalypse. I'm going to call them disputations because the the uh, genre or the, the device that's being used by the prophet, instead of the regular sort of oracular delivery of poetry like we've seen in so many of the other prophets, this time it's more of a conversation, an imagined conversation, uh, between God and Israel. Hashem says such and such. Israel responds with this, oh, it's not really like that. Hashem corrects Israel. It's like this back and forth, like an argument that God is having with Israel. I'm identifying it. This is, I mean, this is subject to dispute. There's a lot of ambiguity here. You could divide it up other ways. But I'm identifying six disputations, and this isn't even my own work, identifying these six disputations. Maybe there's more, maybe there's less. So this first one, what's going on in this first one? He's saying, I've chosen you, and here's the evidence of my love for you. I've brought you back and reestablished you in the land. The Edomites are not going to be reestablished. Now, Paul takes this passage and he uses it to a different effect in the book of Romans. So uh, we're not going to talk about that just now, uh, but that might be where you recognize it from. You might recognize this from Romans, the arguments in Romans, or perhaps you recognize it from one of the Haftaras in the year, because this is also what we read for the Haftarah of, I think it's Parshat Vayishlach. I'm thinking it is, or it could be Toldot. I think it's Parshat Toldot. Yeah, I think it's Toldot, which is the story of Jacob and Esau. That makes sense, but I'm not sure because I've forgotten. Let's run through some more of these. The second one, you see how Israel says, but how have you loved us? It's kind of this sassy, Israel always has this sort of sassy response to Hashem. And it's based on the, the voice, the tone of, of the response is based on what you could call a religious apathy. And this is going to be the issue that we see running through the whole book, a religious apathy that has kind of lost interest in the service of Hashem. It's still going through the motions, still carrying out the rituals and so forth, but has more or less just, yeah. You know, like that, like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just not that into it anymore. <laughs> that's, that's the attitude that's being addressed in the book of Malachi. For example, listen to this one. A son honors his father. I'm in verse six. A servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who despise my name, but you ask. How have we despised your name? And here's the answer. You placed defiled food on my altar. 
but you ask, how have we defiled you? Defiled food? I mean, come on. And here's the answer. By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? Well, yes, it is wrong according to the Torah. You're not supposed to offer up uh, an animal with a blemish in it or with a, a blind animal is considered blemished. Uh, likewise, when you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? It certainly is. This is forbidden by the Torah. Uh, try offering them to your governor. So remember, we don't have a king in Israel at this time, do we? There's no king on the throne. We learned that regarding Zerubbabel and how he wasn't able to pick up the monarchy and carry on because the Persians weren't going to allow it. He says, try offering some of these uh, animals you're bringing for sacrifice. So what's happening here is the priesthood is selecting blemished animals, saying, it's like, uh, we don't want to waste the good ones. So it's considering a sacrifice to Hashem to be an obligation that you don't want to spend too much on. Let's put the minimum amount of effort into this possible. He says, try offering these animals to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. So there's a concept in Judaism called hidur mitzvah. That's to, to make the, the mitzvah beautiful. Like if you have a mitzvah, to do it in the most beautiful honoring possible way. And this is why there's so many things that are just quite simple, like a quite simple mitzvah you'll find in Judaism. It just has this elaborate ceremony. This is called the hidur, the, the bringing honor, the honoring the mitzvah. So what you have here is the opposite of the hidur mitzvah. You have like saying, what's the least amount that we can get away with and still fulfill our obligation? Now, implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hand, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. This is quite harsh. I just wish, I mean, it's, it's rhetorical. It's not, I say, I, you know what? You, you should just, just close. <laughs> If this is the way that you're going to treat the sacrificial system and the worship of Hashem, you should just close the doors, just close up shop. You could kind of think of like this, like it would be a good rebuke. Maybe this would be a good sermon for um, for a lot of uh, a lot of churches today. You know, it's just like you know, if this is the way that if this is how seriously you're taking your religion, what are you bothering coming here for? You just you should just close the doors. You should just close up. It's a good rebuke for a lot of synagogues today. If this is how seriously you're taking Judaism, if this is how seriously you're taking the Torah, as in not at all, except to show up once in a while, maybe on Yom Kippur and uh, Rosh Hashanah, what's the point? You just We should just close down. Apathy, that's what I'm talking about. Religious apathy. But then you have this amazing prophecy in verse 11. It says, my name will be great among the nations, among the Gentiles. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. What does it mean from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun? That's interesting because it's a description of space and time. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun is a way of saying from east to west. And from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun is a way of saying all the time. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. So this is a verse, this is actually a verse that was picked up by the apostles 
and entered into the Didache as a reference to the congregations of Gentiles, the congregations of Gentiles that were forming in the apostolic era. Isn't that interesting? They used this text as a proof text to speak about the worship that was being offered by Gentile congregations. So you can see that in, in the Didache, actually. So my name's going to be great among the nations. It's going to be an amazing thing in the kingdom, you know, in the future, in the kingdom. All the, all the nations in the world are going to be worshiping me, and they're going, to be, they're going to be coming together to worship my name. But you, you can't even, you're, 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 profaning, you're profaning my name by saying the Lord's table, it's defiled, and of its food, it's contemptible. And you, you say, what a burden. Yeah, and this is, this is actually a strong rebuke that I feel this rebuke. You know, because sometimes religion feels like that. It's like, what a burden. Oh, my gosh. Another festival? you got to be kidding me. Oh, I, I just like, I'm too, I am just too wiped out to deal with this. You know, it's like, what a burden. Uh, and you sniff contemptuously, says, says the Lord. When you bring injured, crippled, diseased animals and offer them as sacrifice, should I accept them from your hands? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock, vows to give it, but then changes his mind, sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, greater than your governor, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So in the future, my name is going to be feared among the nations, but I'm not even being feared at home. It's like a prophet's without honor in his own home. A deity is also without honor in his own home. <laughs> my name is to be feared among the nations. This is going to become the main theme for the book of Malachi is this idea of recapturing the fear of the Lord. Because what has happened to the community is that they've become disillusioned. Remember this exilic community? They thought it was the Messianic era. They thought it was the redemption. They're like, they came back from Babylon. They're ready to roll. They're like, bring King Messiah now. We're rebuilding, we're, we'll rebuild the temple uh, and let's uh, change all the fast days to days of, uh, of feasting and gladness and uh, bring the Messiah, and, and we're good. It's the kingdom. And guess what? It's not the kingdom. Messiah's not here. It's, this is dragging on. It's been a couple generations now. That was your granddad's generation, or maybe your great-granddad's generation. I don't know. And you're just still here, carrying on with this, you know. And it's like you don't see Hashem. You don't see Hashem acting in your life. You don't see Hashem acting in the world. There's injustices committed, and it's like, where's God, you know? And this religious apathy sets in. The religious apathy is this idea that, you know, God is not really involved. So if, if I think that God's not really interested in me, and he's not really involved, then I'm not really interested in him, and I'm not really involved. So this is what we're trying to, trying to correct. And we're starting with the clergy. It starts with the. It starts at the top. It starts with the clergy. That is the priesthood. In chapter two. We're still in the second disputation, I guess. Chapter two it says, and now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I'll send a curse among you, and I'll curse your blessings. So <laughs> What's the priest's job? The priest's job is to bless Israel. So the priest's job is to get up and bless Israel and say, May the Lord bless you. And, and priests give out blessings all the time, right? That's kind of their thing. So you say, I'll curse your blessings. So you, in other words, 
Your blessings will have the opposite effect if you don't start honoring me. I've already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the awful from your festival sacrifices, and you'll be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue. The Levi is the house, the, the, the tribe from which the priesthood comes, right? My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. I gave them to him, to Levi, to the tribe of Levi. This called for reverence, and he revered me. That's fear. This called for fear, and he feared me and stood in awe of my name. He stood in fear of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. Nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. So this is a, he's given the job description of a priest. He's saying this is what the ideal priest, the ideal uh, son of Aaron should be like. For the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge. From his mouth, men should seek Torah, should seek instruction. Because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, the Malach. But you, you've turned away from the way by your teaching and you've caused many to stumble. And you violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. And so I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways and have not shown partiality, and but you have shown partiality in matters of Torah. I like this passage very much because it show it depicts for us what the ideal priesthood should be like, what what the the role of the priest. We already know from Leviticus, by the way, we're in Vayikra. We started Vayikra this week, so you know we read all these priestly instructions, and they're mostly involved. They they mostly involve fats around the kidneys and the liver and the fat around the diaphragm and raising this up in smoke and splashing this here and sprinkling this there and so forth. It's all these sort of the rubrics of sacrifice. And we forget the bigger role, the job of the priesthood. What was the priest's job? The, the priest's job was to teach Torah. Instruction should be on his lips. Truth should be on his lips. He's supposed to be leading the people in godliness. What's Amazing to me then is that the book of Malachi is really our second temple prophet. And when we get to the New Testament, when we reach, we reach the New Testament and we meet the priesthood, we're going to find an apathetic, corrupt priesthood that has followed the paths of the Sadducees. And the Sadducean theology is that there is no punishment in the hereafter. And so there is no fear of God among the Sadducees because they don't believe that God punishes sin or rewards righteousness in the hereafter because they don't believe in a soul and they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so you have this incredibly affluent, rich, irreligious. I mean, they're, they're very religious. Of course, they're still carrying out the ceremonies with great aplomb, but their hearts are far from God. And it's like Malachi is calling this situation centuries before he's warning, this is the direction that things are going. He's trying to put a stop to it. Out of that priesthood, there's one, you know, we meet a good priest, right? Zechariah. And he has a son, one priest, a son of the priesthood, who leaves the system, goes out in the wilderness. And this is John the Immerser. 
John the Immerser, who comes in the spirit of Elijah, and he comes uh, with this message, this radical message of repentance. And so what we're going to find is a lot of connections to the ministry of John and the call of John that starts off the story of the Gospels and the prophecies here in Malachi. Okay, verse 10. Another disputation, right? This is the third disputation about faithfulness. Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? But Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. Another defense of the temple. For those who say that God didn't love the temple, he didn't. It says the sanctuary is called one of the things that God loves. Not a lot of things in the Bible that says God loves this. He loves his temple. He loves the sanctuary. How did they desecrate it? By marrying the daughter of a foreign god. So this is intermarriage. Uh, as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. So this is one of the proof texts why the Jewish people are forbidden to intermarry. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? Why is it like this? Well, it's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has the Lord not made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. Why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith. So we see that there's, um, there's domestic problems, not just religious problems, but it starts up there with the clergy and it works its way down. You know, it starts up with this idea of, like, of the fear of Hashem is absent. And then we see that the absence of the fear of, the, of Hashem enters the home. This passage is really precious to me, this, this passage uh, about the idea of that Hashem takes offense at the tears of a wife. And this comes into the Talmud as well, that uh, you, you have to be very careful. The Talmud says you have to be very careful with, with your wife, how you speak to your wife. You speak very gently to your wife because she's, she's easily hurt and brought to tears and Hashem sees the tears of a wife and won't answer your prayers if you if you make your your wife cry and this actually comes into the epistle of first peter where he's he warns us uh, husbands he says you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered so in other words if you're mean to your wife and you make your wife cry you can forget about God listening to your prayers. And then he gives a little general marriage advice for everyone. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. That's like the key right there to a sur surviving marriage, don't you think? Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the, for, for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. It's good stuff. Now, 
we're going to get into some of the prophecies of the Second Temple era. Verse 17 of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? All right, so you see what see, see what's going on here? They're saying, all who do, do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. What they're saying is, we see people committing horrible sins, and nothing bad happens. They get away with it. These people are getting away with murder. And so where's Hashem? How are we supposed to serve Hashem? We're supposed to serve Hashem. We're supposed to do righteousness and, and, and shun evil. But, you know, he doesn't reward the righteous. He doesn't punish the wicked. What's the point? Where is the God of justice? Sort of a Sadducean line of thought. So here's the answer. See, I will send my messenger. There's that messenger again. Who will prepare the, the angel. I will send my malach who will prepare the way before me. Now, this verse should be very familiar to you because this is one of the proof texts that the gospel writers bring regarding John the Immerser. When they say, they go out to John the Immerser and they say, are you the Messiah? He says, I'm not the Messiah. They say, who are you? He says, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. And then also from Isaiah, he quotes this passage, the messenger who will prepare the way. He's to prepare the way for Messiah. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking, and this is the, the master you are seeking, that's King Messiah, will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, that's King Messiah, uh, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Because remember, we're talking this despondent community, they're feeling despondent because they were they thought it was the redemption and it wasn't the redemption yet. So, so you think you're giving up. You're giving up on your hope you're giving up on your messianic aspirations and giving up on your hope. But it's going to happen yet. He's going to send the forerunner and he's going to send the Messiah. And it's going to happen in the second temple era. This is a very important idea that we, come, that we, we draw from Malachi. But before you think it's going to be all rosy, there's a few caveats, a few warnings. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire or launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by and in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me. So he says the judgment is coming. And the judgment does come, not just in the world to come, not just in the afterlife, but in the days of the master, John the, the immerser, the messenger of the that the my messenger who prepares the way, he came with this message of repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This judgment is at hand. And it's going to be a fire. It's going to, it's going, it's going to be a, a fire that burns up the chaff, he says. Likewise, the master warns of this impending judgment that's going to be a refining judgment. And this is what happens in the days of the apostles. The chapter goes on with a discussion. Oh, we should mention this verse. There's a lot of like choice verses that stick out in, in Malachi that are often repeated. For example, this one where it says, Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, 
and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by and in former years. You should recognize that from our prayers because that, that verse gets recited at the end of the Amidah three times a day, and it's in the little meditations that I normally skip at the end of the Amidah, but there it is to remind us when we're praying these prayers, they're, they're in sequence and substitution for the, the sacrificial system, for the sacrifices. And we're looking forward to the, the coming Messianic era and the rebuilding of the temple when, when the worship of God and the sacrifices will be received as in days of old and in former years, like it says here. Skip down to verse 13. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? Well, you've said it's futile to serve God. This is the line of the Sadducees. It's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements, by going around like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. So this, that's, that's the agnostic line. It's the agnostic point of view. And this is where the apathy comes from. God's not really involved. God's not really actively, you know, he's just kind of, he's, it's like the God of Spinoza. He set up the world spinning and he hasn't, you know, he's not really checking in on us. But there's another group. There's a smaller group in verse 16. It says, then those who feared the Lord, this is the opposite. Because what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the belief that God punishes sin and rewards righteousness. So the opposite of these guys are those who feared the Lord, who, who believe that there is a point to serving God because he rewards righteousness. He punishes sin. They talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. What does it mean they talked with each other? Well, this is understood to mean that they studied together, just like we're doing right now. They studied together, they learned together, they learned Torah together. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. And so this is one of the advantages to coming to Bible study. It's a scroll of remembrance. A scroll of remembrance is the, is the book of remembrance. It's one of the books that's opened on, on Rosh Hashanah, in which the names are written. You see, what we have is this, this book is being written, and their names are recorded. And Hashem says, they will be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. You know this word, treasured possession. Am Sagula says like the, the, is in Exodus 19. He says, my treasured people. I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked in those days, between those who serve God and those who do not. All right, that's it. I mean, that's basically it. And then there's this chapter four. The numbering system is different in the Hebrew. If you're following along in a Hebrew text, the chapter breaks off at a different point. But I'm using a Christian Bible here. This is the New International Version I'm reading from. So chapter four says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. This is what I'm calling the small or the, the short apocalypse at the end of Malachi. So in the future, the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. The sages use this 
to speak not only of a, of a, a conflagration in this world, but also of the punishment to the soul in Gehenna and the future conflagration of uh, everything in the material world that will be refined and become the world to come. So this, this verse gets a lot of use. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. It's like the lake of fire, it says in um, in Revelation. This is like from the, the point of view of the book of Revelation, the lake of fire. Not a root or branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness, that's you, you who fear my name, you who are part of that, you know, those who feared his name, uh, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings or healing in his wings. So this, this is an important verse. It gets cited a lot. So when it says the son of righteousness, that's S-U-N, not S-O-N, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Reminds me of an Egyptian, um, some Egyptian iconography that you can see from the ancient Near East where it actually has a rising sun and there's wings on the sun, as if as if the sun has wings to lift it up over the horizon, you know. Poetic picture. It's just part of the culture. So this is what it means, the sun with healing. It also has uh, an implication from a messianic perspective. This is something, this is a teaching that's very common in messianic Judaism. It's one of our favorite teachings in messianic Judaism it, re, regarding the the woman with the issue of blood who comes up behind the master and takes hold of the kanaf, the, the wing of his garment where the tzitzit are, and she's healed. And he says, who touched me? Remember that story? Okay, you know the story. So the question is, what made her think to do that? What made her think, oh, it'll be sufficient if I just go up and touch the fringes, the tzitzit of his garment? Well, it's from this prophecy that there will be healing in his wings. So it says, you shall put these, these tzitzit, these tassels, on the four corners of your garments. But the Hebrew word for corners is the same as the Hebrew word for wings. Okay, so the four wings of your garments have these tzitzit on them. And so when she... She reads this in Malachi. She sees Yeshua doing all these healings. She says, this is the son of righteousness that was prophesied to us. And so she goes, she says, he's supposed to have healing in his wings. She goes and grabs his wing. It's called a corner. It's a wing. It's a corner of his garment. This is where the tzitzit are. And, so, and she's not the only one. It says in Mark that many people were touching the, uh, the tzitzit, you know, the tassels of his garment, and as many as did were being healed. So it's a fulfillment of this prophecy. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. The sages understood this prophecy also in regard to the coming messianic era and the final judgment to indicate that the sun is going to rise. The sun is going to rise. It's going to have two different effects. This sun that's rising, this heat, this flame that's going to come. It's going to have two different effects. On the wicked, it's going to burn them up. Like it said, it's going to burn them up like stubble. There'll be nothing left, not a root nor a branch. But the righteous are going to be healed. They're going to have this uh, you know, complete restoration from the same heat. So, so it's an amazing thing. It says, then you'll go out and leap like calves released from the stall. And you'll trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet because they got burned up on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. So it's sort of an apocalyptic picture. He's saying, because the whole thrust of the book is, you're apathetic because you don't believe that God punishes sin and rewards the righteous. Well, let me tell you something. 
in the future, there's going to be a pretty serious punishment for the wicked and reward for the righteous. Well, what's the ultimate healing that's going to be under the wings of Messiah? Is the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection, we're, we're hinting towards the resurrection, which the Sadducees didn't believe in, by the way. This apathetic priesthood that's being targeted in the prophecies of Malachi. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But that's the healing that's going to be under the wings of King Messiah. And at the same time, the fate of the wicked is also going to be resurrected for judgment and the lake of fire, according to the teaching of the apostles. Where did the apostles get this idea of a lake of fire? Right here in Malachi 4. How do we sum this up? Very simple. Malachi 4.4. Remember the Torah of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, for all Israel. I just thought this is ironic, that this is one of the last verses of the Tanakh, one of the very last verses of the Tanakh, as if God is signing off before starting the New Testament, and he says, one thing I want you to remember, <laughs> don't forget the Torah. First thing we do is forget the Torah. So, as, as all, you know, we put it in this new page, like this page. The next page of my Bible here says New Testament, as if to delete everything that came before that, right? And then he says, to make the connection even more clear, Behold, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. What's his job? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. There's different ways to understand what that means. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. But I like to understand it as turning the hearts of the children back to the ancestors, the faith of the ancestors, specifically the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And likewise, turning the fathers to the children, that is the merit of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the children. That's, how, that's one way to understand it, one way it's explained. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And of course, this sets us up in an amazing way for the story of the Gospels, which begin with John the Immerser coming as the Elijah who was to come, with this message of repentance and a warning of a coming judgment, an apathetic priesthood, uh, a, a nation that has really fallen into a spiritual lethargy, the message of the master calling for repentance, warning of a judgment. It all comes down just as Malachi had predicted.